Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I do want to uh, encourage you to open it to John chapter 18. Uh, we have been engaged in the study of the Gospel of John for quite some time now. And uh, I want to tell you that the next four messages are really sort of a series within a series. Uh, we're going to explore the events of Good Friday in four parts. And those four parts are the trial uh, that we witness here, uh, then the sentence that is pronounced on Jesus, then the crucifixion, and then the death of Jesus. Uh, but we're beginning today with the trial of Jesus. Now, you know, if you uh, think about it, there have been lots of trials, famous trials, significant trials throughout the history of the world. Uh, and maybe it's just a, a product of my age, but when I think of a famous or infamous trial, I can't help but think of the O.J. Simpson trial. Now, some of you were probably even too young to, uh, you weren't even born yet when that took place. That's how long ago it was. Uh, but the O.J. Simpson trial, O.J. Simpson was a former NFL football player turned actor who was arrested for the murder of his wife and her lover on June 17, 1994. And the O.J. Simpson trial was televised in its entirety. I mean, if you, you know, had the time, you could watch that thing in its entirety. The trial began on January 24, 1995, and it lasted until the verdict was delivered on October 3, 1995. So that trial lasted for uh, almost 10 months. And there were lots of memorable moments. There was lots of courtroom drama that took place. The moment the verdict was delivered in that trial was one of those moments where you remember where you were. At least I, I remember exactly where I was. I was a delivery driver for UPS at the time, and I was delivering a package in a building downtown, 200 Granville Street. And I remember in the lobby of that building, there were a couple hundred people gathered around a small television screen as that verdict was being read out. And the moment the not guilty verdict was announced, I mean, people just kind of, you know, walked away from that screen, muttering something about a flawed justice system and, and all of that. People had lots of different opinions about the verdict of the O.J. Simpson trial, although I think we all know he did it, right? Uh, but whether they got that verdict right or wrong based upon the evidence they had is, is up for debate, I guess. But at least it was a 10-month trial where there was evidence presented and counter-evidence presented and argumentation and everything went according to the legal practice of the time. It was a public trial, followed the legal conventions of the time. Now, I'm not trying to import all of our rules back into the first century, but when we read the account or the accounts of the trial or trials of Jesus it becomes clear that this whole thing was a rushed process that didn't follow the rules of their time. And when you piece all of the events together from the Gospels, it looks like there was a total of six trials, three religious trials, three civil trials, that all took place between the hours of Thursday evening and Friday morning. 
And the trial we're looking at this morning took place in the early hours of Friday morning at a private residence. So I want you to follow along as I read the account that's before us. We're in John chapter 18, and we're looking at verses 28 to 40. This is God's word, and this is what it says to us. It says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus and called Jesus and and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others tell you or say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might, be not, might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. You know, sometimes it's a, it's a little hard to take a section like this that's, that we just read and sort of turn it into a sermon outline. But let me just sort of say that we're going to consider this passage under four headings or four things that we encounter here. And I think the first thing we should be struck by is a surprising perspective. Now, what I mean by highlighting a surprising perspective is just to draw your attention to the fact or draw your attention to the slow pace at which these events are narrated to us. So I entitled this message, Good Friday, Part 1. Now, that might not seem like much of a title at all. What I'm trying to point out is that everything that happens from this point, from verse 28 of chapter 18 until the end of chapter 19, all of that takes place on Good Friday. All of it happens on the day that Jesus was crucified. Now, if, again, if you've been around Crossridge for, for a, a while now, then you will know that we've been at this study of the Gospel of John for quite some time. We broke the Gospel of John into two sections, or two halves, and we began in the fall of 2021 with a look at the first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John. And that really highlights sort of the three years of Jesus' public ministry. It's like a snapshot of those years, His teaching and His miracles and all that He did. 
We then took a break from John last summer and then picked things up in chapter 12 uh, in the fall of 2022, so back in September. And let me just take you back to the very first verse of chapter 12. This is what it said there. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, or where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So everything that takes place from John chapter 12 to John chapter 20 takes place within the span of a single week. That, that's amazing. I mean, we, we are let into the events of the final week of Jesus' life with great de- detail. We can piece together the days and what happened on each of those days by what's recorded here. So why do I bother to point that, that out? Well, I just finished reading a book called or entitled The Escape Artist. And that book tells the true story of Walter Rosenberg, who was the first Jew to escape from Auschwitz. It's a fascinating story. And that book is really divided into three sections, or divided equally between three parts of his life. The first part of the book is uh, sort of taken up with uh, his, you know, his upbringing in, in Slovakia, and then his arrest and imprisonment and his experience inside of Auschwitz. The second part of the book chronicles his attempts, or his escape, and then his attempts to warn the leaders of other countries as to what was really happening within Auschwitz. The narrative that was being spun at the time was that the Jews from all of these countries, as they were being, that the narrative was they were simply being resettled in Germany. They would board these trains and they would go to these resettlement camps. What was really happening is they were boarding the trains and they were going to the gas chambers. And Rosenberg thought if he could just warn the leaders, if they just knew what awaited the people there, they would resist. And then the third part of the book is taken up with the rest of his life, his marriage and divorce and his eventual move to BC where he actually served as an associate professor at UBC. But what struck me is very little space in that book was taken up with the subject of his death. In fact, in a book that's over 400 pages long, less than a page of it was about his death. And actually, this is true of most, if not all, of the biographies that I've ever read. The Gospels have a completely different perspective when it comes to their accounts of the life of Jesus. The Gospels place a disproportionate emphasis on the events surrounding the death of Jesus. So in the Gospel of Matthew, you will find that the final eight chapters out of 28 chapters deal with the final week of Jesus' life. In the Gospel of Luke, it's the final six chapters out of 24. In the Gospel of Mark, it's the last six chapters out of 16 chapters. And here in the Gospel of John, it's the entire second half of the book that is taken up with the events of the final week of Jesus' life. Someone has referred to the Gospels as passion narratives with extended introductions. Now, it's not that the life of Jesus was insignificant, his teaching, his miracles, his perfect life. But the emphasis falls on his death and resurrection. And this is not what we're used to. This is why I said it's a surprising perspective. 
Now, I mentioned to you that everything from this point in chapter 18 until the, the end of chapter 19 is taken up with the events of Good Friday. So this means we're actually going to spend four messages exploring the significance of Good Friday. And I can think of no better way to prepare our hearts for Easter and to take time and just go slow and reflect on the significance of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. So my encouragement to you is to enter into that. Use this time to think deeply about the depths of God's love for you. That He sent Jesus not just to be your moral example, but to be your Savior. To reflect on the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's you and me. Second thing we discover here is a shocking hypocrisy. Look at verse 28 again. It says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. You know, there's a lot of irony in that verse. The Jewish leaders bring Jesus to the governor's headquarters. But they won't go into the residence because they don't want to be defiled, because if they're defiled, they won't be able to partake of the Passover meal. Now, the background to that is that according to the Jewish custom at the time, if you as a Jew entered into the home of a Gentile, you would be defiled. You would be ceremonially unclean. It wasn't that the Gentiles were considered unclean necessarily, but that something in their home, like the presence of yeast, would make that home unclean for you to enter. And you would be defiled. Now, the reason I said that was based on the Jewish custom at the time is because I want to make it clear this wasn't based on biblical teaching. It didn't come from the Old Testament. So the Old Testament did contain a stipulation about what would make you ceremonially unclean and unable to celebrate the Passover. The way you would become ceremonially unclean in regards to the Passover was if you had contact with a dead body. So Numbers chapter 6 records this for us. It says... And there were certain men who were unclean through touching a dead body so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. And those men said to him, we are unclean through touching a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering at its appointed time among the people of Israel? And Moses said to them, wait, that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. If any one of you or your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall, keep, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the fourteenth day at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter, bitter herbs. So Moses is answering a question here. The question is, look, we've become defiled by touching a dead body. Do we still have to keep the Passover? And Moses' answer to that is, yes, but you have to wait an entire month before you can celebrate it, because you are unclean. You've touched a dead body. So there's nothing in the Old Testament teaching about, you know, you've entered the home of a Gentile or anything like that. 
the religious leaders, as you know, were always adding layers to what God commanded. So they added this layer. Look, if you enter the home of a Gentile, you're unclean. But hopefully you can see the hypocrisy, right? Look, we're okay bringing an innocent man before an official who has the authority to execute him, but we don't want to contaminate ourselves by entering the home of a Gentile. We don't want to become ceremonially unclean. That's a shocking level of hypocrisy. Now, they may not have actually had contact with the dead body of Jesus, but the blood of Jesus is all over their hands. And unfortunately, this group of religious leaders was not the first and not the last who cared deeply about external righteousness, but cared little about inner righteousness. You know, Jesus delivered an extensive critique of the religious leaders of his day in Matthew chapter 23. Here's just a small sample of what Jesus said. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate But inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now that's it, isn't it? That's the the picture of hypocrisy. You appear to be one thing on the outside, but you are something completely different on the inside. I mean, this this is what they're doing. Look, we don't want to be defiled by entering the home of this Gentile, but they're filled with hatred for Jesus. And sometimes that outward appearance, that external righteousness, is the product of a carefully practiced external religiosity. You know, I attended school with a guy like that. I attended Bible college with a guy like that. Uh, He lived in my dorm, lived in a room right next to me for a couple of years. He was a pious guy. He was diligent in his studies. He was engaged to be married. He was preparing for a life of ministry. He didn't go to movies. He didn't listen to secular music. He was careful not to be contaminated by the world. So you can imagine my surprise a few years later when I got a call from his roommate telling me that an arrest warrant had been issued for this guy. Several young boys had come forward claiming he made inappropriate sexual advances. Now, I know it's not pleasant to talk about those sorts of things, but sometimes all of that external religiosity is just a cover for deep perversion. In this case, the religious leaders' concern for their external righteousness, their unwillingness to be defiled, was really just a cover for their hatred and their jealousy. So why did they bring Jesus to Pilate? Well, we get the answer in verses 29 to 32. It says, 
So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And then the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Right? Their sole purpose in bringing Jesus to Pilate was so that Jesus would be executed. Now, they didn't have the power to do it. But they had no problem getting the Gentile ruler to do it. They didn't want to get their hands dirty. They didn't want to be contaminated by the world. But they had no problem with getting someone else's hands dirty with the blood of an innocent man. Now, I want to say this to you carefully because I'm not trying to equate all instances of hypocrisy with the murder of Jesus, but there is a temptation that we have to be on guard against as Christians. And that temptation is to go through with all the rituals of religious observance. We show up at church, we get our doctrine right, we participate in all the right activities, we say no to all the wrong things, those things become a kind of cover for what's really in our hearts. Our hatred, our greed, our lusts. And what I want to say to you is don't fool yourself into thinking that external religiosity is a substitute for internal righteousness. That's hypocrisy, and all hypocrisy will eventually be exposed. The third thing we see in this passage is a stunning admission. Now, I never went to law school. I mean, I know that's not going to come as any surprise to you. Um, But I think I know enough to know that the purpose of a trial like this one is supposed to be to establish either the guilt or the innocence of a person. Now, that, that should be the case in any kind of trial But here, Jesus is brought to Pilate on capital charges. I mean, his life literally hangs in the balance, and you would think that that would mean extra caution is taken to make sure we can deduce the innocence or the guilt of this person. That's not at all what we see, though. So look back at the interrogation or the trial that took place before the high priest, before Annas, uh, earlier in the chapter, back in verse... 19, uh, we read this. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So, no evaluation of evidence. I mean, Jesus says, Look, everything that I've done, I've done out in the open. All my teaching has been public. You've heard me in the temple courts. You've seen what I've done. But rather than deal with that, they simply resort to violence. I mean, when you can't defeat an argument, you just punch the person in the face, right? 
That settles it. But it wasn't just the trial before the high priest where you see this. I mean, the religious leaders now bring Jesus before Pilate, and Pilate has the sense to ask the pertinent question. Verse 29, Pilate says, what accusation do you bring against this man? Right? What's the charge? What's the thing I'm supposed to try him for? I mean, that's the most basic question when it comes to establishing the guilt or the innocence of a person. And the answer that the leaders give in verse 30 is evasive. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. I mean, what kind of an answer is that? Well, of course he's a criminal. We brought him to you. Well, Pilate wasn't going to put up with their vague response, so he tells them, look, take him yourself. You judge him. He's saying, like, look, if this is just a religious thing, judge him by your own law and your own standards. I don't have time for that. But nevertheless, they persuade Pilate to examine Jesus for himself. Now, Pilate wasn't totally in the dark about Jesus. I mean, he had sent a contingent of Roman officers along with the religious leaders to go and arrest Jesus. So he's heard, he's heard the rumblings. He knows the Jews have made the accusation that Jesus claims to be a king. And that's the line of questioning he pursues with Jesus. In verse 33, he asks Jesus plainly. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered and, and, and says, You know, look, my, my kingdom is not of this world. And then after hearing Jesus' answer, Pilate says, so you are a king. Now, the reason this is such a big deal is because if Pilate suspected that Jesus was trying to set himself up as the king of the Jews, like the physical king of the Jews, it would have meant that there was an insurrection afoot, that Jesus is going to get his followers together, they're going to try to overthrow Herod, the sort of puppet king that the Romans had installed over Israel. And there's going to be a lot of chaos. So what was Pilate's assessment after examining Jesus? Well, listen again to verse 38. Pilate said to him, that's to Jesus, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. That's a stunning admission, right? This is a trial, and the one who's doing the trying says, I find no guilt in him. Now, Pilate actually is going to go on to make this same statement two more times in chapter 19. So we see it in verse 4 of chapter 19. It says, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Again, in verse 6 of chapter 19, it says, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now, when we read those statements by Pilate, we ought to know that Pilate actually spoke better than he knew. Pilate was making that statement about the innocence of Jesus with regard to the charges of the religious officials. But the truth is, or the truth, that there was no guilt in Jesus 
was actually true on a much deeper level as well. Now, remember when this took place. I mean, the passage tells us twice that this, that this took place at Passover. And during Passover, each Jewish family was supposed to provide a lamb as a sacrifice. And the only kind of lamb they could present for a sacrifice was an unblemished or a lamb with no defects. And what John is helping us understand is that Jesus becomes our sinless, spotless Passover lamb. Jesus is the only one throughout all of human history in which it could truly be said there is no guilt in him. That actually takes us to the final thing we discover here, which is a sovereign substitute. So Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. That's been his declaration. He said that. But then notice verses 39 and 40. So he says, I find no guilt in him. And then verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Now, the other gospel writers give us a little bit more information about this, about this exchange that took place. So Matthew records it like this. He says, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. Now, we are supposed to see that there is a clear contrast between Jesus and Barabbas. Jesus is innocent. Barabbas is guilty. In Matthew, he's described, Barabbas is described as a notorious criminal. John simply tells us that he was a robber. But when we read the other gospel accounts, we get more information about Barabbas. So Luke recounts it like this. He says, but they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And then here's Luke's note. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was a rebel leader intent on toppling the government and thought nothing of taking human life. When Peter preaches a sermon before a group of religious leaders, he says this, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. 
So Barabbas was guilty. He knew it. Pilate knew it. Everyone knew it. But the governor had a custom in those days, and that custom was to release one prisoner at the Feast of Passover. It's sort of like the presidential pardon that happens at Thanksgiving. So he could either release innocent Jesus or guilty Barabbas. And Pilate, being a politician, puts it to a vote, right? He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows Barabbas is guilty. But he goes along with the wishes of the crowd. He releases Barabbas and condemns Jesus to death by crucifixion. Now, as you know, Jesus was crucified between two criminals. Most likely, he took the spot intended for Barabbas. Now, in one sense, the story of Barabbas is just really one more story of the many injustices that took place during the trial of Jesus, right? His arrest, his trial, his death, all of it was unjust. But in another sense, it really typifies exactly what the gospel is about. We see it in that contrast between Jesus and Barabbas. Interestingly, the name Barabbas means son of the father. So here we have one who is truly the son of the father, Jesus, and we have Barabbas. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a greater contrast than the one that existed between these two individuals. Uh, J.C. Ryle commented on this scene in this way. He said, the one was a sinner against God and man, a malefactor stained with many crimes. The other was the holy, harmless, and undefiled Son of God in whom there was no fault at all. Now, Again, there's lots of injustice in our world. We could simply conclude this is just one more example of that. But there's actually more to the story than that. One commentator put it this way. He said, Barabbas does not stand before us merely as an individual. He represents at the same time the human race in its present condition, as fallen from God, as in a state of rebellion against divine majesty, bound in the fetters of the curse of the law till the day of judgment. See, when we read this story, we ought to identify with Barabbas. Because we are the ones who are guilty, guilty of sin, guilty of rebellion against God. We are the ones who, in our natural state, are imprisoned, bound, awaiting our sentence on Judgment Day. But Jesus takes our place, He takes our penalty. He takes our punishment. Jesus is our sovereign substitute. There's a letter that circulated in the early church. It was actually written in the early part of the second century. It's known as the Epistle to Diognetus. And here's how that letter describes the exchange that we are invited to participate in. It says this of Jesus. He himself took on the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own son as a ransom for us, the Holy One for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, 
the immortal one for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation. That the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one, and the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. That's what occurred for us on Good Friday. Jesus became our sovereign substitute. He took our penalty and we were set free. Now, long before the epistle to Diognetus, long before it was written, God promised what this great exchange would look like back through the prophet Isaiah. And here's what he said, and we'll close with this. He said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what it means to say that Jesus is our sovereign substitute. Let's pray together. Father, we pause this morning just to reflect on this great exchange. To think about the fact that Jesus, in whom no guilt was found, took the place of one who was condemned to death because of his actions. And to know that that speaks and reminds us of exactly what Jesus has done for us. That he took our place, he took our punishment, he took our penalty. And we've been set free by his sacrifice. So, Lord, we pray we would not forget that. We pray as we enter into this season, uh, it would strike us in a fresh way and that we would have gratitude for your gift of grace in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.